again, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of the System Science in Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm Professor of Public Health at the University of Glasgow and a director of the CIFAR Consortium. CIFAR is a large consortium of academic and policy partners who use system science evidence to inform policies related to health and well-being. In my podcast series, I'm speaking to scientists, policymakers and practitioners to find out how they got involved in system science research and practice. Joining us today via Zoom is Professor Nigel Gilbert. Nigel is a sociologist and a pioneer in the use of agent-based models in the social sciences. He is the founder and director of the Centre of Research in Social Simulation at the University of Surrey and director of the Centre for the Study of Complexity Across the Nexus, CCAM. Nigel, it's wonderful to be able to welcome you here today. Let me start by asking you how you ended up in this area of research. It could be a long story. I'll try and keep it very, very short. Um, when I went to university, what I wanted to do was computer science. But it was such a long time ago, there weren't any computer science courses. And computers in those days were you know, things that lived in big rooms. So I did engineering, a general engineering degree instead, which I found fairly boring. Uh, but I specialised in my last year in what was called management studies. And part of that was uh, a bit on the sociology of occupations and institutions, which I thought was fascinating. Well, eventually I ended up by being a lecturer in sociology, despite, by the way, never having done a sociology exam in my life. Um, but I still retained this uh, kind of interest in computer science. And actually, if you look back at my career, it's been a mixture of computer science and social science. To begin with, uh, it was all about uh, putting uh, social science into computers, human computer interaction and things of that kind. But uh, in the 1990s, I realized that uh, computer science could do something for sociology or for so social sciences. And one way of doing that was to build computer models of society. And I was fortunate enough to be right in at the beginning of something, of a, a, an area that became known as social simulation. And I've been doing that kind of thing for ever since, since then. Um, it's been a, a fascinating journey. When, when I started, there were probably about two dozen people who had any idea of how to do this uh, in the whole world. Uh, there were now uh, certainly tens of thousands of people uh, who are doing this kind of, of computational sociology, uh, computational social science. Uh, so it's been a, a great experience. So tell me a bit about, you know, how that building up of the field worked. Obviously, you know, you've been there right at the start, as you say, um, and you've you know, built very successful centers around you and training programs and, and, and so on. Where, where do you think we are now in that in that journey and where do you see the field going? But also, how did you find, you know, trying to get people engaged in the, you know, in the first instance when when all of this was still very new? What I actually did for my PhD was uh, work on the sociology of science and scientific knowledge. And one of the things that I uh, specifically did was to track an area of physics, 
to look at how it grew. And one of the ironies of, of, of being involved in, in social simulation is that I could see uh, developing in front of me exactly the uh, process that I had previously uh, identified uh, in an obscure area of physics. Uh, so that was quite fun. Um, it was a process of, for example, starting off with small workshops, then uh, bigger conferences and uh, setting up a, a journal uh, and uh, setting up a, an international association. Um, the, well, uh, several international associations of the European Social Simulation Association has been the most successful one. Um, and all the time uh, training new people uh, with PhDs and uh, short courses and things of this kind. So uh, you could see the growth uh, happening exponentially. I think there were two issues that are, are current issues. One is that it's very easy for a field like uh, social simulation to be kind of navel gazing. We can you know, build better and better models, uh, but not actually uh, communicate with the rest of, of science, uh, or let alone uh, the rest of the world. Um, so one of the things that uh, the, the area, I wouldn't call it a discipline, uh, the area is trying to do is to uh, persuade um, sociologists, as they were regular sociologists, regular psychologists, economists, and so on, that uh, agent-based modeling, this kind of modeling, uh, is, has, is, is a powerful tool that should be in their toolbox as well. The second uh, thing that is going on in the field is that we've now been doing it long enough uh, that uh, people are beginning to, to worry about how to standardize it. You know, what are, what, are the, what are the regular methods that one should use? Uh, we don't want to kind of invent the, the wheel again and again. Uh, so is there a, a, a standard methodology that we should use? Um, is there a, uh, a set of ethical guidelines that we should uh, attend to? These sorts of standardization efforts are what are occupying people's minds at the moment. How do you see the relationship between more qualitative system thinking approaches and computational modeling? I, in the past, um, so I'll talk about sociology, but I'm sure it applies in other fields as well. Uh, there was this kind of battle between those who thought that qualitative research was the bee's knees and those who thought that uh, quantitative research was the only way forward. And I was always extremely impatient about this because uh, the kind of modeling that I do is both or neither, depending on how you like to think about it. Um, it uh, um, computational modeling, agent-based modeling in particular, can incorporate both qualitative and quantitative uh, data, uh, and it can illuminate both of these. Uh, and so I try and get away from this kind of uh, division between the quants and the quals. Uh, we need both, and uh, we need them to talk to each other. In explanatory terms, how well should a computational model represent a system? What's its relationship to reality? That, of course, is a, a, is a big question, and I could probably go on 
all day about the answers to that. So I'll just try and make a, a few uh, points. Um, there's a very famous saying which I, in the field, which I shall probably now uh, butcher, but uh, essentially say it's, it's, it's by a guy called Box. And he, what he said was uh, that no model is perfect, but uh, some models are useful. Well, another way of thinking about this is that a model cannot possibly be uh, as, uh, include everything. Uh, it wouldn't be a model if it did, if it wasn't some kind of abstraction or simplification of reality. It wouldn't be any use apart from anything else. Uh, it would be like having a map that was the same scale as the actual Earth. You may as well use the, the, the Earth itself rather than the map. No, a map has a, a scale of you know, one to 1,000 or whatever it may be. Uh, and it's only because of that that it is something you can put in your pocket and, and, and is useful. The same applies to models. Uh, a model has to be a, a, an abstraction and a simplification if it's going to be of any use. Well, one of the uh, implications of that is that uh, because it's a simple model, you can't expect it to generate uh, results, answers that are precise predictions. And that applies to any model. But in fact, the situation is even worse, if you like, uh, if you're modeling uh, social phenomena or health phenomena for that matter, because what those phenomena are complex in the technical sense, not just complicated, but complex. And that means that uh, it is in principle, in many cases, impossible to make point predictions, exact predictions uh, about the future. Just in the same way as uh, you can't predict the stock market uh, prices or the stock market index in a, in a year's time. If you could, you'd be a multimillionaire. So um, it's unreasonable to expect these models to generate uh, accurate predictions. Of course, a model can tell you something. It won't uh, tell you point predictions, but it will, uh, you know, let's take, take the, the model that uh, is used by the, my meteorologists to predict the weather. Well, uh, as, as you probably know, it's more or less impossible to predict the weather in England more than about five to 10 days in, in advance. But even so, I can absolutely guarantee you that the temperature in 10 days time is not going to be 60 degrees centigrade. Okay, so you can use a model to, well, one way of using a model is to uh, make not point predictions, but to indicate what is very, very unlikely. Another way of using a model is to investigate different scenarios and see what would happen if you made certain sorts of assumptions. And a third way of using a model, which is one you mentioned, is to see whether, is to use it as a, as a kind of theory testing tool. A model embodies some kind of theory about the world. And if you build a model according to some theory, then you can first of all check that the theory is complete. You can actually build a model. It doesn't leave out big amounts of stuff. 
And secondly, you can investigate what would happen if the theory were correct. It's not to say the theory is correct, but you can investigate what would happen if it were correct. And that's often very interesting and useful. How do you think academics can help policy colleagues with, deal with the uncertainties in their complex systems? I think that the main thing that a model can do is to help them understand a complex world. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the inputs that can be useful in making policy, making, making decisions. Uh, I want to emphasize, first of all, it's not the only thing, but you know, no, no politician, no policymaker should just follow the model just you know, to use the recent experience, following the science is important, but it's not the only factor. Helping policymakers understand the complexities of the area that they're dealing with is one way in which they can do that. And I might, it's not quite the answer to your question, but I also might uh, emphasize here that it's no good building a model in, in an ivory tower uh, in a university or what, or even in, in business, and then saying to the policymaker, look, here's my marvelous model. You should do what it says. No policymaker worth his salt or her salt is going to believe you in that situation. What you need to do is to bring them in at the very beginning. So you co-create, co-design the model. So that, because, and why do you do that? Because the way to help policymakers understand what the model means and what therefore, what, their, what the policy area is about, is if they and you together develop the model. So that is a really important and uh, issue which is only, I think, beginning to get understood, that model making is not something, uh, no, I should say, the important thing is the process of model making far more than the finished product. All the models you and your team have built, you have a favorite model? Maybe one that you particularly enjoyed building, or one that was able to show something that was unexpected? I think my favorite model is one I uh, did of the English housing market. This was back in 2008. And you may remember that there was a certain financial crisis at that time, and house prices were part of that crisis. And uh, what I did, well, in fact, I started doing this before the, the financial crisis, but it just happened that the crisis occurred. And I was working at that time with uh, Price Wardhouse Coopers, because um, uh, yeah, well, they were interested in the potential of aging-based models. And we decided that we were going to build a, a model of the English housing market. Now, the way that we did this, I think, is interesting in, it, in itself, in, in that it wasn't a sort of mathematical model of the housing market. 
in which one a sort of mathematical model where one extrapolates from what happened in the past and tries to see what would happen in the future. Rather, it was a model in which individual householders were modeled, as were the state agents, as was the geography of, in this case, a rather abstract town. And uh, they, uh, as it were, the, the people, the agents, you can think of them as kind of virtual people, um, lived in their houses and then uh, decided that they needed to move. And uh, they went in, in this virtual world, this artificial world, they went to the estate agents and said, well, uh, how much can I sell my house for and put it on the market? And then they waited for other householders in the model uh, to come along and make offers for it. But of course, that, just like in the real market, real housing market, um, you can't uh, move out of your house, you can't buy a house until you've sold your own. Uh, so there were these housing chains also. And there were, um, uh, in the model, there were also mortgages and things of this kind. And it all went quite swimmingly and uh, we, could, we could adjust lots of parameters, the interest rate and this, that and the other. Um, and uh, about, uh, about six months after I'd finished the model, uh, the chancellor who was trying to rescue the uh, housing market decided that what uh, he was going to do was to uh, essentially abolish the stamp duty for uh, buying houses for uh, the cheapest uh, what, cheapest slice of, of, of house prices uh, to encourage first-time buyers. And after he'd made this announcement, I thought, well, I'll see whether I can model this. And uh, I did. And to my slight surprise, I found that is this uh, tax relief, which was costing the exchequer literally billions, uh, made no difference or very little difference at all uh, to the, my virtual housing market. And the reason for that turned out to be quite obvious in, in retrospect, uh, that uh, if you were going to buy, if you were a first time buyer and you wanted to buy a house, you, at that time you had to, there was a very strict limit on the amount percentage of, your, of the value of the house uh, that you could borrow from a bank or a building society. And it was that, it was the absence of money to fund the deposit, uh, which was causing the problems in the, in the housing market. Well, that's what my model showed me. And uh, it turns out that that actually is the case or was the case. Uh, and I think if I had done this quickly enough and, 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 and persuaded enough people of this, I could have saved the, 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 the treasury uh, a couple of billion pounds. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't think of this until too late. If you had to give advice to the area of public health on, you know, where would you focus your attention? Are there any particular areas that you would find interesting or that your models have connected to where you thought oh look there is a health domain is there anything you can give as messages to us in the 
systems science and public health field? I might be preaching to the converted here, but um, I've been really interested in the epidemiological models that have been so influential in uh, COVID policy. The SEIR models that uh, London uh, School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine and, 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 and Imperial have developed and many others. And this is interesting because these models focus in almost entirely on the spread of the virus. And they, they, their modeling of human behavior is really very crude. I won't go into the technical details here, but basically they have a very uh, simple way of modeling social contacts um, and almost no modeling of people's reaction to the spread of COVID. So um, although they are making a, a recommendations about, for example, lockdowns, um, the models themselves don't have any kind of feedback effects as to what happens if a, a lockdown is anticipated and only in the very crudest uh, sense of what happens to, uh, if a lockdown actually is, is, is imposed. Crude in the sense that um, the number of modelled contacts between people is reduced, but in a you know, rather random kind of way. I use this as an example because it seems to me that this is a, an instance of where modelling social behaviour as well as the epidemic, the behaviour of the epidemic is really interesting, important and uh, something which is feasible to be done. And I think this is, uh, yeah, one, one could perhaps use this as, as an example of the way in which um, modelling of social behaviour is important in public health. Thank you so much, Nigel. Fascinating insights from one of the founding fathers of this field of research. It's been a pleasure. Bye. If you'd like to read more about Nigel's work, you can find his profile on Wikipedia and the University of Surrey website. If you'd like to find out more about Cypher, or you want to subscribe to future episodes of this podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is with S for sugar. Thank you for listening to our fifth episode, and I hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye.